tweets made about the department, about people in the department, our men and women here, about cases pending in the department, and about judges before whom we have cases make it impossible for me to do my job. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast. As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, elsewhere in California on KFOI and Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka. In Oregon, KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, and KEPW in Eugene. Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and WLRI and Maui, Hawaii, KAKU. Columbus, Ohio, WGRN. Palinville, New York, WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR, New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, and Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM950, KTNF, and Coast to Coast and Around the Globe, streaming on the Internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the Globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com. But today, you got me instead. I'm Nicole Sandler of NicoleSandler.com, doing my best to fill Brad and Desi's shoes today. Never fear, they'll be back for the next episode. As usual, there's a lot going on, so buckle in. We've got a lot of territory to cover this hour. Coming up, we're going to speak with Asuan Subasang of Daily Beast, who has a brand new book out along with Lachlan Marquet, his colleague over there, called Sinking in the Swamp, How Trump's Minions and Misfits Poisoned Washington. He's got some unique insights and, well, a few other things. But we'll start, as we tend to do, with a look at the news. Oops, he did it again, but you knew he would. After being impeached for doing something similar, Donald Trump again publicly made a blatant request for a quid pro quo, asking for a personal political favor in return for official government action. Just last week, the White House put a freeze on New York's Global Entry Trusted Traveler program, which will cause those who use it to lose the ability to speed through airport security or border crossings with Canada, a move Trump made in retaliation for New York Governor Cuomo's decision to block ICE from access to their DMV database. On Thursday afternoon, Trump tweeted, I'm seeing Governor Cuomo today at the White House. He must understand that national security far exceeds politics. New York must stop all of its unnecessary lawsuits and harassment, start cleaning itself up and lowering taxes, build relationships, but don't bring Fredo. I guess that was a veiled reference to Chris Cuomo of CNN. Whatever. Walter Schaub, former director of the Office of Government Ethics, tweeted, Barr's PR nonsense is not the story. The story is your president just engaged in Ukraine-level quid pro quo extortion, but this time against one of the United States. In plain sight on Twitter. 
New York's Attorney General, Letitia James, chimed in, When you stop violating the rights and liberties of all New Yorkers, we will stand down. Until then, we have a duty and responsibility to defend the Constitution and the rule of law. By the way, I file the lawsuits, not the governor. You go, girl. But about that other big story, after days of mounting criticism about William Barr fulfilling his role as Trump's Roy Cohn in the wake of the Department of Justice decision to walk back the initial sentencing recommendation for Roger Stone, the attorney general sat for an interview with ABC's Pierre Thomas, obviously trying to do damage control. To have public statements and tweets made about the department uh, about uh, our people in the department, our, our men and women here, about cases pending in the department, and about judges before whom we have cases, uh, make it impossible uh, for me to do my job and to assure the courts and the prosecutors in the, in the department uh, that we're doing our work with integrity. Critics, including me, have suggested that Attorney General William Barr's comments to ABC News appearing to stand up to Donald Trump were a coordinated attempt between him and the White House aimed at diffusing the outrage sparked by the Justice Department's walk back of the sentencing recommendation for Trump's longtime ally, Roger Stone, which Trump had fiercely criticized. Somehow, Barr doesn't seem to be in any danger of losing his job. But a few former White House staffers are returning, starting with Hope Hicks, who will reportedly return as an advisor working closely with Jared Kushner. I read at least one report that said Hicks' return has more to do with Donald Trump's declining mental state. For once, I believe them. Despite Donald Trump's calls for his prosecution, we learned Friday afternoon that former FBI acting director Andrew McCabe, the guy who authorized the FBI's investigation into Trump, will not face criminal charges. Washington Post reporting that the Justice Department revealed the decision to McCabe's team on Friday. It was unclear if there were other plans to make it public. The move is obviously going to infuriate Trump, who has raged publicly and privately in recent months that McCabe and others he considers political enemies should be charged with crimes. We also learned that the Army will not be investigating Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, this per Army Secretary Ryan McCarthy, despite Trump's desires. Uh Uh-oh. Well, a rare show of bipartisan action unfolded in the Senate on Thursday when, by a vote of 55 to 45, the chamber voted to rebuke the president and limit his ability to launch military action in Iran. Eight Republicans joined all the Democrats to pass the resolution that would require Donald Trump to secure congressional approval for military action against Iran and for U.S. troops to be pulled from military engagement within 30 days if approval is not granted. Mike Lee of Utah, one of the eight Republican senators to vote with the Democrats, told reporters, quote, This is not about the presidency. This really is about the proper allocation of power between the three branches of government. Congress has ceased to be in the war declaration driver's seat. You think? The measure now goes to the House. But it'll have to wait a little while as they're on recess until February 25th. The Senate is also now gone until the 24th. And to celebrate President's Day, Trump, again, is headed to Mar-a-Lago, his 30th visit since 2017. Oh, and he'll appear Saturday night at a fundraiser that'll cost $500. 
$180,600 per couple to attend. Yeah, the most expensive fundraiser since Trump took office. So Jim Jordan can't shake the allegations that while he was assistant wrestling coach at Ohio State University in the early 90s, he turned a blind eye to direct reports alleging sexual abuse by then team doctor Richard Strauss. On Tuesday, a former captain of the team and the brother of one of the alleged victims, Adam DeSabato, testified at a hearing on an Ohio bill that would allow victims of Strauss to sue the university for damages. Jim Jordan called me crying crying, groveling on the 4th of July, begging me to go against my brother, begging me, crying for a half hour. That's the kind of cover-ups that's going on there. Jim Jordan called me several times after that. That week, I had to have my lawyer call him, tell him to stop calling me. I had a teammate, George Pardos, I called and told him, call Jim Jordan and tell him to quit calling me or I'm going to beat his He's throwing us under the bus, all of us. He's a coward. He's a coward. He's not a leader. He's a coward. I'm a leader. I was captain of these guys. That's why I'm here. I would never abandon my team. He abandoned us. Our head coach abandoned us. He flipped his story. He called other people to flip their story. He called Mark Coleman to flip his story. He called his parents, 90 years old. That's the kind of person Jim Jordan is. Jordan continues to deny knowing about the alleged abuse. Well, last month was the hottest January ever recorded on Earth, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. The average temperature across land and ocean surfaces was 2.05 degrees Fahrenheit, above the 20th century average of 53.6 degrees. It was the 421st straight month with temperatures higher than that average. And finally, Friday marks the second anniversary of the massacre at Parkland, Florida's Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. This is my community. Every one of these school shootings is a tragedy. But when it hits close to home in your neighborhood, it's magnified a millionfold. Today, we remember the 17 lives that were taken that day and the many others who were wounded and the wounds inflicted on a body by an AR-15 are devastating. Never again. If it were up to me, I'd take away the guns. I'd take away the guns. Up next, some swamp diving. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. 
Welcome back to the Bradcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, in for Brad and Desi today. Music lovers out there might recognize what's playing. It's a song called Swamp from Talking Heads. And I play that because we are mired in the swamp. Donald Trump keeps telling us we're going to drain the swamp. But as with everything he says, it's the opposite. We're living in opposite world. So that's my intro to today's guest. On the line with us now is Aswin Subasang. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. I understand you go by Swin. Yes, indeed. And you did, you pronounce it beautifully. Awesome. Thank you so much. Okay, Swin, uh, you along with your colleague over at the Daily Beast, Lachlan Markey, have a new book out. Just uh, really- Marquet. Uh, Marquet. See, I got your you name right, and I screwed right, up his. can't get. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Lachlan Marquet. Sounds Lachlan very Marquet. Anglican. I don't know. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> um, your new book is out. It's called Sinking in the Swamp, How Trump's Minions and Misfits Poisoned Washington. And before we get into any of this, I got to read the blurb on the back of the book, which usually Please. has excerpts. But But I love how you sort of preface what we're about to read here. It says, A deeper understanding of the Trump presidency requires examining the unique, often comical, frequently disturbing goings-on in the corridors of power outside the Oval Office. We're aiming to take you inside the Trump sausage factory where grifters, ideologues, hangers-on, and unquestioning foot soldiers put the Trump vision for America into effect and frequently attempt to leverage it for their own personal petty ends." We're not going to insult your intelligence by pretending to play it down the middle. And we hope you're looking for a take on this ridiculous time in our country that doesn't try to pretend that everything is fine and normal. It isn't. It isn't. Oh, my goodness. The times we're living with are just so abnormal that normally somewhat uh, reasonable people like me are really freaked out. Are you finding that... Swin, in your conversations with people who work around the White House, do they understand the severity of the situation we find ourselves in? I mean, to be perfectly honest, some some do. Most do not, either because of a personal vested interest, because even if they think Donald Trump is a little bit of a wild man or has his excesses, shall we say, he's still a Republican president with a Republican Senate and a Republican administration. And there are people working as apparatchiks or supposedly loyal lieutenants in his ranks who are doing this because they see that the very bigoted reality TV shaped memes are absolutely justified by the conservative policy agenda ends. So that's one camp of uh, People were talking about uh, the realists working in the Trump administration who fancy themselves a more respectable type of conservative. But then there are a lot of people who maybe supported or voted for in the primary, someone like Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz, or maybe even John Kasich, who have come around entirely Mm -hmm. to President Trump. In fact, they probably came around to him, um, if not by late 2016 and December 2016, probably by January or February 2017. It did not take that much time at all. I'm not talking about the Lindsey Grahams or the Rand Pauls, the people you see on TV a lot, if not every day, talking about how in love they are with the Trump presidency after spending uh, a year and a half calling him a madman and a closet liberal and a racist (laughs) or a uh, pseudo fascist or whatever or what have you. Um, I'm talking about these people who uh, many of your listeners, if not all of them, would never know by name, who work behind the scenes, 
virtually anonymously as cogs in the administration who will openly or at least privately tell you, yeah, the, the guy won me over. He, he has earned my vote for his reelection. And I, I like what he's doing. And um, who am I to be outraged over a couple of mean tweets or a dash here, or a dash here of um, outlandish racism? I mean, and obviously I'm paraphrasing. Here. Sure. But I, I mean, I guess my short answer is that when people talk about, oh, my God, there are these top Republicans who are privately anxious or humiliated by or, or outraged by Trump, that's true to a slight extent. But I think that overshadows a far greater story of how much Trumpism has been subsumed into the mainstream GOP and vice versa, and how giddily it's been done since before even day one of the administration. Right. And I think a lot of us held out hope that there were the so-called adults in the room. And I think at the beginning of the administration, there were a few of them. They have systematically been exiled over the course of the last three years. Now, today, uh, one of the big stories that's popping up is that Uh, John Kelly, former White House chief of staff before that, head of uh, Homeland Security, is finally speaking out. He he made a speech somewhere that I guess The Atlantic has a story on in which he's saying that all the the terror that many of us are feeling is kind of warranted. He basically said Trump is everything you think he is. Why hasn't he spoken up sooner? And why didn't he go before Congress and say these things? Why do we have to read about it after he says these things in a public speech? I don't know the details of the speech exactly, if he was paid for it, how Mm. much he was paid for Mm it, um, who exactly invited him. But he is doing this in the least um, um, (laughs) integrity-laden way you could possibly do Mm -hmm. something like this. Because whatever he's speaking up about now in kind of not even a full-throated denunciation. Yeah, he's saying stuff that you could consider sort of rough towards the president and the way he's approached foreign policy and other matters of his administration. But he's sort of doing it almost with kids' gloves, kind Mm -hmm. of in a muted fashion. And he's doing it, as you astutely pointed out, long after it ever would have mattered. Um, He, to give a speech and sort of get plaudits from some people, maybe in mainstream media or very small slivers of certain political circles, because you wag your finger at Donald J. Trump, who's doing some big bad things, but having done nothing to stop it, but in fact worked tirelessly even to try to enshrine some of these excesses in the form of uh, politics or Uh, so-called political normalcy while he worked directly for Donald Trump as his White House chief of staff is, to me, a utterly meaningless gesture. It's a gesture at most. It feels incredibly self-interested and hollow. And I mean, I got to tell you, I kind of read that this morning. I was like, okay, this seems utterly pointless. Yeah. What's next? Right. John John Kelly is having a sad in public. (laughs) I guess Uh, so. Great. I mean, if he wants to talk about the terrors of or the excesses of uh, of Team Trump that have been going on since 2017, well, I mean, uh, one of the biggest examples of that is obviously like the graphically grotesque family separation policy, yes. which even before that was officially implemented as official Trump policy was something that John Kelly openly called for on cable news when he was interviewed. Yep. So this man is not a um outlier in this environment 
and neither are these other so-called respectable Republicans who have worked for Donald Trump. They're not outliers. They right. are exactly they were exactly where they should have been. And I mean, um, but, but to go back to your earlier point about uh, the so-called adults in the room, yeah. um, just to give you an interesting tidbit of how this book that written by me and Lachlan Mortay sort of came together was barely a year into uh, the Trump era. I think this was early 2018 or late 2017 when we were first approached about potentially writing a book on the Trump era. The initial premise that people were interested in us writing about was, would you guys be interested in writing a book about the adults in the room hmm. or, you know, sort of, and how they work behind the scenes while all the omni shambles and explosions are going off around them. And even at that point, and this is when John Kelly and people like him still had this veneer of respectability <laughs> right. um, in the Trump administration. Our initial response was, I mean, if you want to talk to us about writing a book, we can have that discussion, but that is absolutely not a book we would want to write. And because we don't believe in the premise, so why would we, we write it? A, like, primarily, the problem to us when we heard that pitch was we don't think these so-called adults in the room actually exist. And even if some of them do, they do not matter. Like, it, it's not a, um, um, th there was no point in writing, like, basically a reported propaganda tome sure. on, oh, these are the people keeping the tweeter in chief in check <laughs> right. while he goes about and does his batch whatever. As time went on, uh, very quickly, for people like Mattis, Kelly, Tillerson, we can go down the list. Mm -hmm. It became very apparent that our initial pushback to the premise that a the adults in the room don't matter or b they don't actually exist in the trump white house and in the trump era um it was sort of reinforced by all of these guys sort of like tripping over their own dicks to try to maintain some level of stability mm -hmm. in trump world that just never was going to happen and never really existed so as all of their public reputations were taking down one two three maybe eight different pegs as 2017 turned into 2018, it seemed pretty clear that if we were going to do a Trump book, we would, it would be more amenable to our initial premise, which is what the book Sinking in the Swamp became, which is that if you want to accurately tell the story of the Donald Trump era, one of the only acceptable ways to do it is to do it through the hanger-ons, the sycophants, the raving lunatics and nut jobs, and, um, and just just bloodthirsty MAGA ideologue. Right. And there's no shortage and, of those people. Right. right. Like if you're going to tell the story, right. It has to be through their eyes mm -hmm. from the bottom up to tell the story about Donald J. Trump. You cannot try to approach it as if you are maintaining the default dignity to the office that right. has right. pervaded so many other books about different administrations and different white houses. I think this, the, the, um, 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 uh, that approach is wrong and bad for political media, for literally any administration, whether it's Obama, Bush, Clinton, whatever. I think it's especially wrongheaded when you're trying to write a book that accurately portrays the racist game show host and what he has wrought with yeah. his administration as lieutenants. So that was the driving premise behind our book. That's what we thought was sort of missing from some of these other um, um 
books written on Trump world that have mm-hmm. come out over the last three years. And that's what we were looking to do. And if any of your listeners pick up a copy of Sinking in the Swamp, I hope they think we did a good job. I, I think so. Uh, we are speaking with Aswin Subsang, Swin, to his friends, and I hope that includes us, uh, about the book Sinking in the Swamp. But I want to get to some of those characters you talk about. But I got one more question on the alleged adults in the room, because this just it bothers me so much. Anonymous who last year wrote this op-ed saying, don't worry, there are adults here. We've got your back and we're here to write. And then this person goes and writes a book at a time when we're begging for people who are inside to come forth and testify about the crimes being committed by this administration. And this person thinks it's okay to write a book anonymously without coming forth. Um, if they're still there, which allegedly he or she is, why haven't they come forward? Isn't this kind of chicken to be um, writing behind an anonymous pen name? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Mm. It, 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 it's incredibly annoying. Um, <laughs> I mean, and there's this sort of little pieces of bait that was thrown out during the promotion and the lead up to the release of that book that mm-hmm. you're talking about, which of course sold like crazy and became a New York Times bestseller, where the author, Anonymous, whoever he or she is, uh, declared that whatever profits there are from uh, this book and this book deal will go to like the Committee to Protect Journalists or right. Reporters Without right. Borders. I, I don't know. One, one of those big organizations that's decades of reporting in the First Amendment and protecting as such. Um, and that, yeah, I, I, I don't seek to personally profit off of this. And it's like, okay, well, that, that's sort of nice, I, I guess. That's a nice gesture. But like we were talking about earlier, when all you have is gestures, instead of doing what could actually be classified in at least some political circles as a courageous act, what is it worth? Why, why should – I mean, a lot of people apparently do care because the book sold by gangbusters, but me from a personal – uh, standpoint, not just as a reporter, but as a vote citizen in mm-hmm. the, the United States. Why should I care? Right. Why, why should I waste my time on this when it's when it feels and is utterly meaningless in my eyes? Yes, I, I agree. And I, I'm glad to hear you say that. I think if this person actually had, you know, information to give us, uh, it's a hell of a lot more credible when you attach your name to it. And without a name on it, I'm sorry. I don't know who you are. So anyway. And the book was specifically written to withhold information. He wow. or she explicitly said, I think in the book, or at least in some something that was transmitted before uh, the book was released, that they would be withholding certain details about being in the room directly with President Trump so as to not give away exactly who they are and preserve their anonymity. I'm like, okay, if you're going to write this stupid and honest book, at least dish out some juicy details about policy making (laughs) or internal deliberations that have to do with Trump. But no, like they, he or she explicitly stated, oh, no, no, I'm not going to even give you a full picture of that because that might blow up my spot. Well, then great. Then what's the point? Right, exactly. Why are you doing this? Um, So, all right, so enough of that. We're here to talk about Sinking in the Swamp. Again, the book is just out. Uh, Congratulations. Is this your first book? Yes, yes. Um, I don't know why anybody would ever write a book. The process (laughs) sucks. It's arduous. Mm. Um, Listeners, if you're thinking of writing a book, um, uh, take up a hobby like (laughs) shooting or... Uh, rafting, I don't know, literally Ooh. anything else. Ooh. 
Okay. Well, that's not a, 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 an endorsement <laughs> for writing it, but reading it, yes. Yeah. So, uh, you know, as right. happens with these things, and as you mentioned, there have been a series of books about the Trump White House. Um, I What I appreciate so much about yours is that as dire as our situation is, you do it with a sense of humor, and you realize the absurdity in what you've witnessed over the last three years in this White House as you go through the litany of characters who you say, you know, are are in his <laughs> in his circle. Is there one person as part of this administration that stood out to you above the rest as the most absurd? Oh, man. Um, well, obviously, my default answer is Donald John Trump. Well, right. But right. I, I, I'm, um, hmm, my other default answer, which I think is too easy, would probably be Sebastian Gorka. Mm. Mm-hmm. who used to work in the White House and was and still is one of the president's most enthusiastic uh, attempted owners of the so-called liberal media and one of his biggest defenders mm-hmm. uh, within conservative media. And he's this sort of hulking Hungarian-American um, um, uh, foot soldier who is a true believer in MAGA, thinks Donald J. Trump can do no wrong and is the coolest thing since Jesus H. Christ invented uh, Wonder Bread, and uh, just w- has this habit among among you. Well, like, this might seem a little navel gazy, but if you're a political reporter covering Trump world and you've ever written anything or about Sebastian Gorka or ri- or reached out to him for comment, the chances are incredibly high he has sent you back an email or a text message telling you about how much of a kid he thinks you are, how he thinks you're morally despicable, and how he thinks all the media is fake, and why would I ever talk to you? And then, of course, that inevitably ends up being printed in the media as a bunch of different comments. He is a former Trump official and a current uh, friend of the president and true believer who has accused my colleague Lachlan uh, just randomly out of the blue one day via email, citing nothing just i guess he was just doing it for fun he accused lachlan of having a cocaine habit oh, he has nice. no idea wh- right. where that email came from or why and he's accused me of having zero moral center i think he <laughs> said he would pray for my soul oh so, my goodness allegedly according to seb gorka the co-authors of this book are a cokehead and a um, morally bankrupt uh, Asian American. So, if that's your cup of tea, please run out and buy a copy oh, of the book right now. Okay. Um, I, I gotta ask about Rudy Giuliani because he, to me, is the most per- perplexing character still operating uh, for the president's purposes in in Ukraine. It's mind-blowing to me that he hasn't even been interviewed, as far as we know, by the FBI, hasn't testified before any House or Senate committee, nothing. He's just allowed to keep doing this work when he doesn't officially work for the government, yet he's representing the president in Ukraine. The whole thing sounds like a bad movie to me. Right, and now that acquittal and impeachment is in Trump world's uh, rearview mirror, um, they're still going at this. They're still going after the Bidens. They're still going yeah. after the Ukraine and the Ukraine 2016 stuff. And as Giuliani told us um, here at the Daily Beast a few um, days ago, um, he still speaks to the president uh, regularly. When, when, when we had some reporting from other sources that uh, Trump had personally blessed 
Rudy's ongoing operation and continued post-acquittal investigation into the Biden family, uh, we reached out to Giuliani. He wouldn't comment on the specifics of our um, um, uh, reporting there. He didn't deny it uh, either. He, um, uh, we, we also asked him, like, how, well, how is your relationship with the, the president? And he simply uh, shot back that it was still super solid and that he spoke to the president twice today. Mm. And I think this was this uh, past Monday. Uh, when we asked him exactly what they were gabbing about uh, over the course of what I believe were two different phone calls uh, this past Monday, he, of course, again, declined to go into specifics. But it goes to the fact that um, he is not, after all the tumult, after all the scandal, after all the investigation over Trump, Ukraine, and what have you, where Rudy Giuliani was a central figure, and in fact, you could argue the central figure, and if he hadn't done what he did over these past several months, his client, Donald Trump, would not have been impeached. After all of that, he is the exact opposite, at least at this point, as per, uh, um, of a persona non grata. Yeah. He's the exact opposite of that. He is still thoroughly embraced by important figures in Trump world. He has set up an official channel with the Justice Department, um, and Attorney General William Barr has confirmed that for his ongoing Biden-Ukraine digging shenanigans, whatever. And um, as I just told you earlier, the President of the United States has done the exact opposite of anything to stop it or tamp it down. He has fully approved it, green-lighted it, and um, for anybody, including uh, at one point uh, Republican lawmaker Susan Collins, who wants to claim that, oh, yeah, that they've learned their lesson. They are screaming into your faces that they absolutely have not. And and now the president, of course, has been acquitted. And we're where we are yeah. and doing the exact same stuff that got them into their mess, except this time with even more in- impunity. Definitely with more impunity. I mean, here we are post impeachment. You look at at least Bill Clinton was impeached and never said that he wasn't. He wasn't convicted by the Senate. He wasn't removed from office. But, you know, they acknowledge he was impeached. Donald Trump, I refer to our situation as opposite world because everything is the it's it's the opposite of reality. Um, So he takes this non conviction and non-removal as an exoneration. It's nothing of the sort, just as the Mueller report didn't exonerate him. What he says is the opposite of fact. And and yet he's got these people, these sycophants who just hang on his every word and believe the lies that emanate from him. Have you ever known of a public official to lie with the impunity and the frequency that this man does? Frequency, maybe not. I mean, I'm one of those weirdos who still thinks that President George W. Bush was <laughs> more of a disaster huh. than President Donald Trump. Yeah, well. And um, the uh, lies that spewed from that administration, especially as they pertain to things like, oh, I don't know, uh, 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 the Iraq War right. and torture. Yeah. Um, Again, maybe the frequency was less because they're less pornographic and and and, and prolific with their lying as someone like Trump and his people are. Mm-hmm. But uh, you, you could argue that those lies were worse or more severe, right? More damaging in terms of real world consequences, right? Um, so that might be a. Uh, I, I mean, it's sort of a. Um, 
um, it's almost cognitively uh, dissonant, although I don't think it actually is, to hold the view, which I do hold, that um, Trump is a unique, horrific figure of history and is an administration is especially shambolic, and disastrous, and the cruelty is almost unmitigated. And to think he is a departure from the quote-unquote norms, but then to look at another very recent administration that draped itself in some ways, in some ways not, in quote-unquote political norms like the Bush administration, and to at this point, at least for now, view that past administration's body count and atrocities as significantly higher than the Trump administration's. I mean, look, we've only been here for three years. Perhaps this is a situation of give Trump time. Mm-hmm. But at, at least for <laughs> no. now, I mean, as someone who sort of came of age in the Bush era, I mean, I, I guess the vaguely comforting thing I can say is things can always get worse and they have gotten worse. So, you know. Right. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll see. Have you have you gotten any feedback from the White House from anyone in a position of power over there uh, since the book has been released? I, I mean, my best friend Donald Trump is ecstatic about it. Oh. He's really glad that the book is starting to sell, <laughs> and um, um, he wishes uh, me the best in all my future endeavors. Of course, he does. Um, yeah, yeah. He he sent me a um, no. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I. I, I mean, I can't get injured with too much specificity, but there have been multiple people who are written about and reported on in the book who have gotten in touch with me and my co-author, Lachlan. Some of them are bizarrely pleased for whatever reasons they have. There are others who are very much not so, which is what we were expecting when this book came out. Mm-hmm. But um comes with the territory. Right. I mean... <laughs> All right. Well, one last question, because I know I know I've kept you longer than I said I would already. I apologize for that. Knowing what you know, knowing what you know about this White House, this administration, it's a two parter. One, will there be a fair election? Will you be able to trust what happens given the way that Donald Trump has ruled with a heavy hand on uh, basically every front? And two, if he does lose, will he leave office? I think there will be a free and fair election. That doesn't mean don't be vigilant right? as a voting populace and as a news consumer. But I think we will be A-OK on, on that front because whatever irregularities there have been with the Trump era, a lot of our democratic tradition still seems intact and not completely on fire mm-hmm. at this very moment. So and for your second question. Yeah. Um, if, if he does lose, I think he'll make something, I, I think it's highly possible, if not probable, they make some big old messaging to do about it and whines about it, maybe accuses the Democrats of widespread voter fraud that <laughs> never course, happened. Right. But at the end of the day, this isn't, this really isn't a banana republic. He isn't, there is not going to be a single military officer who means anything who is going to be on his side okay. to help keep him in power or in the, actually in the Oval Office. So I think if he does lose, if he does lose, I am by no means saying that it is most likely that he will. I actually think it, it's Donald Trump's election to lose in 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if he does lose and he's out of that job in early 2021, he will not go away as mm-hmm. long as mm-hmm. he draws breath. There have right. been these other presidents who 
even though they still maintain a public profile and may say political or policy-related things from time to time, they generally recede into a post-presidency, which is generally an unofficial rule that once you're done presidenting, you know how tough the job was. So you, for the most part, you shut the hell up because right. it is not tradition for there to be a president in this sort of shadow president who used to be president of the United States operating in the public sphere, saying what he or she thinks the current president uh, should be doing. Donald Trump will almost certainly not abide by that. The day he's out of office, I predict there is a high probability that he'll start maintaining a public profile, um, whether on Twitter or on TV appearances Both. or big old public appearances, yeah. maybe even big rallies <laughs> that he convenes himself, sure. tries to keep pushing his own agenda and his viewpoints and his lust for public attention um, as much as he possibly can. So just because he will either be voted out or eventually leave the Oval Office, as long as he draws breath, Donald J. Trump is going to be a major force in American media and American politics yeah, is my us. dark, dark prediction for mm. where we go forward. <laughs> oy, oy, lucky us. Um, if we were embarking on summer, I would say uh, great, you know, beach reading here. I live in Florida, so it's even good beach reading for me this time of year. Sinking in the oh, Swamp, How Trump's Minions and Misfits Poisoned Washington. It's the brand new book from Lachlan Marquet and Aswin Subasang, who you regularly read over at the Daily Beast. Now you can read them in book form. Uh, Aswin, thank you so much. It's great to meet you. I've seen you. I've been reading you. I see you on with Chris Hayes a lot and always appreciate your work. And it's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. We got one more segment to go on today's episode of the broadcast on my program, which you can hear at NicoleSandler.com anytime on demand. I try to start each episode with something humorous because invariably the show winds up going to dark places often. So I like to start with something funny to at least lighten the mood a little bit before it gets, you know, heavy. So listeners, send me funny bits that might work on the show. And this one arrived today, and it is oh so good. The video is awesome. So I will post it at bradblog.com, where we post each day's show. So you can watch the video and read along with the lyrics. You'll recognize the tune it's set to. Uh, so stick around for that. That's what we call a tease. I'm Nicole Sandler, in for Brad and Desi today on the broadcast. This is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, on my program, I like to start each day with what I call a funny, something to make us giggle, perhaps, lighten the mood before things get serious, which this day and age, it happens every day. 
And it takes a real talent to be able to make people laugh about the state of our country today, because really, Donald Trump is not funny. He might be funny if he weren't so dangerous, but he's dangerous. So he's not funny. So I really appreciate the people with the talent to make us laugh. So we're going to finish things off today with a song. It's from a group called The Founding Fathers Sing. You can find them on YouTube. But again, I'm going to post the video to this song, which adds a whole other element to the brilliance of it at bradblog.com, where we'll post the episode of today's show. It's called The Day Democracy Died. Long, long time ago, a Tuesday in November, when that sinking feeling laid us low. We knew if he had his way That we'd all live to curse the day When decency received a fatal blow His bankruptcy's got no attention Grabbing barely mentioned Promising a great wall He swore to make tax rates fall I still remember how I tried to have sympathy for his third bride But something rumbled deep inside the day Democracy died But no, don't let democracy die He's a famous ignoramus, can't tell truth from a lie. And if he wins, we'll kiss our country goodbye. Singing, vote for anyone but this guy. Vote for anyone but this guy. Is Putin the one to blame? Cause we all know it was not Ukraine. Lost it by three million strong. And do you believe the shit he says? Repeat it by Fox talking heads. We're quite amazed they fell for such a con. All the red hats had is a rally's cheer, but there must be something in the beer. Cause if they had a brain, then they know. this guy vote for anyone but this guy every four years we all make a choice and try to unite our divided voice i guess that's how it's always been now we find ourselves in this crazy state and want to vote for love or hate and we can't have a let the dark A tyrant king and peaches sure taste sweet. Oh, but now that's 
but this guy Vote for anyone but this guy And the crowd there knows who they're not gonna pick And on the screens the pundits shriek A slanted poll, an angry tweet Hackers interfering It's too late for a hearing Good thing you and I and all our friends I realize our life depends on making sure this madness ends before democracy dies. Yeah, we're all singing. No, don't let democracy die. He's a famous ignoramus, can't tell truth from a lie. And if he wins, we'll 
kiss our country goodbye Singing vote for anyone but this guy Vote for anyone but this guy We're all singing No, don't let democracy die He's a famous ignoramus Can't tell truth from a lie And if he wins We'll kiss our country goodbye Singing vote for anyone but this guy The Day Democracy Died from The Founding Fathers Sing. Pretty good, huh? All right. I mentioned at the beginning of the show that Friday marked the second anniversary of the mass shooting in Parkland, Florida at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. I live in the next town over. So it's, it's a rough day, and I appreciate the laughs. But I want to leave things on a hopeful note. Something else that happened on February 14th, and I'm not talking Valentine's Day. This one, actually, Desi Doyen reminded me about. It was 30 years ago, February 14th, 1990, when, after passing Neptune on its way out of the solar system, Voyager 1 took a picture of the Earth. Neil deGrasse Tyson called it Earth's first selfie. And Carl Sagan wrote about it. He reflected on that image with words that resonate today in a piece called Pale Blue Dot. And Neil deGrasse Tyson shares it with us. If you look at Earth from space, you see a dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever lived out their lives, the aggregate of all our joys and sufferings, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilizations, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every hopeful child, every mother and father, every inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species live there on a moat of dust. Earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and in triumph, they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of the dot on scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner of the dot. How frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. It's up to us. It's been said that astronomy is a humbling and, I might add, character-building experience. To my mind, there is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits 
than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly and compassionately with one another and to preserve and cherish that pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. Neil deGrasse Tyson with Carl Sagan's Pale Blue Dot. And that brings us to the end of this edition of the broadcast. Thank you for joining me. Uh, Brad and Desi will be back for the next show. Until next time, I'm Nicole Sandler of NicoleSandler.com, echoing Brad Friedman when I say, sincerely, good luck, world.